as we settle in to hear, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And because it's your word, it will accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. Lord, would you use your word now to dig deep into our hearts and cause us to follow you more truly? Would you guide us now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is the book of Hebrews. In chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 11. I want to read just three verses here, but we'll start here in verse 11. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. Now, just a reminder to us, as we continue our reading through the book of Hebrews, uh, letting this settle in, the book of Hebrews is really a book of comparisons. So, so far, we've already seen uh, the author compare Jesus to the angels We've seen him compare the message of Jesus to the message of the law that was given by the angels. Uh, We've seen Jesus be compared to Moses. And in each of these comparisons, the two things being compared are in some way similar, but Jesus, of course, will show himself to be somehow greater than the other. So last week, the comparison that we looked at is really the comparison of rests, that there is in some sense now an earthly Rest, and yet there still remains ahead, and a day later still a greater rest, an eternal Sabbath in which we will enjoy God and all of his renewed creation in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, so that's where he's been before, now the author turns to a particular comparison that he doesn't spend much time on. He's very brief in it, but I don't want to miss it here. I don't want to just brush past it or fold it into another part of a sermon, because even though this comparison is sharp, it will actually give us comfort, I think, I hope. We'll get there. Um, Let's look at the comparison. What's being compared in these three verses is the word of God to a two-edged or a double-edged sword. So you'll notice that the author doesn't say that the word of God is the sword. That would be uh, silly. I'm not swinging this around, clang-clanging, just like he doesn't say that Jesus is an angel. There's a comparison And the comparison is to emphasize the particular power of the word of God. 
So this is not the only place. There's a number of places where the word of God speaks to its own living power. So turn to 1 Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter in chapter 1, verse 23. This is now the word speaking about itself. It says this, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. He's not telling us particularly new things there, things we're familiar with. Grass fades, flower fades, we fade. But God's word does not fade. It never fades. And it's through God's word that Christians are made into Christians, that Christians are born again through the power of Jesus. And that's not just a conversion moment. There's even more that happens through the word. Um, in 2 Timothy, I know a number of Bible verses here. We're quick jumping, but we're talking about the Bible, so I guess this is appropriate. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, in verse 15, Paul's now speaking to and about Timothy. He says this, you, verse 15, uh, from childhood, you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's the word of God that makes the Christian complete, that equips the Christian. So if you want to be growing in this area, our first place to go should be the word of God. We're even familiar with the comparison of the word of God to a sword. Hebrews isn't, isn't the only place that that's mentioned. Ephesians talks about this in chapter 6. Um, in the extensive section about uh, the armor of God, put on this, put on this, put on this. It's a, a fairly familiar passage to many of us. And he says um, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, in all circumstances... Take up the shield of faith with which you can ex extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Here's another place where the word of God is being compared to a sword. It's specifically part of the armor of God used to fight and defend against evil. In fact, even Jesus used the word of God this way. You remember, in his early years of ministry, when he was in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus was tempted by the devil himself. 
And when he faced temptation, the power that he used to fight back against it was the word of God. The very famous line where he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting there from the book of Deuteronomy, using the word of God as a sword. So we know that the word of God is powerful, but, but, the author of Hebrews is not just saying that the word is powerful. He's emphasizing a particular way in which the word of God is powerful in the choice of comparisons that he makes. So the author didn't say that the word of God is like a battering ram, that it's just got brute force. He doesn't say that the word of God is like a slingshot, say, that it's got incredible range. I mean, he could have used those analogies. Those would have been fitting in other ways, but that's, that's not his purpose here. In comparing the word of God to a sword... He's making a particular point about the blade, the blade of the sword. You notice it, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. The word is sharp and piercing. And this is good, but it also means that we need to take very great care with the Word of God. So in our kitchen, I was about to say my kitchen, but it's not mine. It's really Laura's. Uh, Not just because she's a woman, but because she graciously cooks for our family. Thank you. Uh, But in our kitchen, our, our kitchen knives are very dull. And uh, Laura has tried a few times to get me to sharpen them, but I I kind of like that they're dull, personally. They feel safer to me that way. Uh, You know, when I'm chopping um, potatoes, they, uh, you know, I can slip a little bit, they can catch my finger, and no blood comes. You know, I know if you talk to a professional chef, they will tell you that sharper knives are safer, but not the way that I cook. Uh, so I, I personally like this because I can nick myself and not leave, leave a mark. But, but, if you've got a sharp knife, a very sharp knife, and you make one slip, you may lose skin or even a finger. I mean, we know that if it's sharp, you have to be very, very careful with it. How much greater care, then, should we take when we make contact with the Word of God, which is sharp, with even two-edged blades? The reason why Paul says to Timothy, uh, in his letters to Timothy, Timothy is the leader of the church of Ephesus at the time, uh, and he's giving him advice in, in 2 Timothy about how to lead, and one of his pieces, one of his commands or calls to him even is, Timothy, rightly handle the word of truth. Rightly handle the word of truth. That is especially important 
for Christian leaders and teachers, but it's also just true for every Christian. Rightly handle the word of truth. The word of God is good and powerful and sharp when it is used in the proper way. But if it is mishandled, it can slice a person in two. Sometimes that happens on purpose. You see people using the Bible almost to slice others in two. Sometimes this can even happen on accident without meaning to that we quote a verse perhaps out of context and it wounds a person, cuts them very deep. We need to take very great care how we swing the sword of the word of God. I've seen this go wrong in so many ways. We've seen, I've seen women who have been made to stay in violent and abusive marriages because the word of God was mishandled. I've seen teachers and many others, but especially, uh, not teachers, teenagers and many others um, who are led astray into all sorts of confusion about sex and gender and sexuality because the word of God is being mishandled. We've even seen the church be made to look foolish when Christians say that the Bible makes particular claims about science or politics or economics that the Bible does not actually say. So the word is mishandled and the church looks silly. We want to hold the word of God with humility and reverence and even a measure of fear because it is sharp and piercing. Now, with that, having said those things, we also cannot afford the pendulum alternative to the other side. We can't afford to be so afraid of the power of the word, so intimidated by it, afraid that we're somehow going to mishandle it, that we just tuck it into the knife drawer so it won't cut anyone. I mean, if, if, if you're concerned that you don't know how to handle it rightly, the answer to that is not just to avoid the word of God. We need the word. An untouched sword is no sword at all. Without the word of God, we will lose track of faith and even God himself. We need this as a vital part of us, and we need to learn how to use it. It's central to us. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is uh, one of our summaries of trying to get a grip on, on what the word has said about uh, uh, things that are true of God and life and man and all those things, when it's summarizing all those things, the Westminster Confession does not begin by talking about God, which is surprising. It doesn't even begin by talking about man or other things. The Westminster Confession begins in chapter 1 by talking about the Word of God. Chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures. Because we cannot know God in a saving way, apart from God's word. It will not happen. If we lose track 
of God's word, we will begin to reduce God to something he's not. We'll begin to see God as just maybe a traffic cop who hands out tickets. Or begin to see God just as a grandpa who hands out Werther's Originals or whatever the new candy is now. Or begin to see God as just a coach who hands out the play with a you know, pat on the backside. Or begin to see God as really non-existent, nothing at all, with no hands whatsoever. But the word of God swings its sword, slashing through all of those wrong ideas, and says, thus saith the Lord. I am like this. I am like this in all of my being and wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. Do not miss it. I want you to know me. You need to know me through my word. It is good then to be pierced by this. Now, the reason why the word of God is so powerful it is, is because it is more than just ink on a page. When the author of Hebrews talks about the word of God here, he is, in a sense, talking about the Bible. But he's talking about a whole lot more than that. Look at the descriptions in the text of what the word of God does here. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharp. It pierces. And it discerns hearts. It's not ink on a page that does that. It's only a person that can do those things. So the Word of God here is not an it. It's a he. You see it? When he talks about the, the word of God being all these things, then he says, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Not its sight, from his sight. We are talking here about Jesus, the word of God. It's not the only place in the scripture where Jesus is called the word of God. The most familiar one's the very beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This is talking then about Jesus. But there's another place in the Scripture that ties together Jesus and, and the, the, word, the description of him as the Word and the sword. They're bundled all together. It's in Revelation chapter 19, almost the very end of the Bible. And I'll warn you ahead of time, there's some dark imagery in this one, but I don't want us to get too caught in this. Just notice where the sword is here, and Jesus says the word. Revelation 19, let me begin in verse 11. John writes this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it, this is Jesus now, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, 
And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You see where the sword is here? Now, we know when the sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth, Jesus is not literally spitting out swords here. This is not a game of mortal combat. (laughs) There's some imagery here emphasizing the power of Jesus just by speaking. So the word of God is living and active in what Jesus says because it is who Jesus is. Now, this is where this gets very personal. Because we might feel safe if we're able to hold the sword of the word of God in our own hands. That will give us a sense of control. We can use that sword then on the outward way. We can use it to pierce others and to defend ourselves. And some of that may be appropriate, although sometimes we do those things and call it theology or Bible study. And it's basically just a way to hide and avoid letting the word do its work on us. But the double-edged sword here is not in our hands. It is in the mouth of Jesus. And he points it right at our hearts. He will pierce us, discern us, expose what is hidden inside of us. Do you know, people do these studies, I don't, I just read the books about them, the most common description that non-Christians have of Christians? The most common description non-Christians have of Christians, you would hope it would be that we are loving. (laughs) They would know we are Christians by our love, but that's not the case. At least that's not what they say. The most common description of us as Christians is that we are hypocrites. That Christians are hypocrites. And I can't even deny it. I can't even say, no, we're not, without looking silly. uh, Because I know that so much of this is just too often true. Not only about Christians generally, but about myself. We might say that, uh, that we want to help the poor and the needy, but, but too often we just give them the scraps left over after we have provided for our own wants and needs. We might say that we want racial reconciliation, but too often we harbor secret judgments and prejudices. We might say that we want people to know and love Jesus, but we barely speak a word about him or even pray that others will come to know him. 
We might say that we love our neighbor, but we can hardly avoid an argument in our own house. So we try to hide. Try to cover it up. Put on a mask or some sort of disguise, and maybe, maybe, if we're very good at it, we will fool other people, but we can never hide before the Word of God who sees all. If we really make contact with the Word, He will dissect you. He will peer into your very soul. He will pierce the motives even of your own heart. And he will fully expose you before God. Do you feel the weight of that? If you do, if you feel that weight, and you feel a bit unsettled, maybe even a little afraid at the thought that your heart would be fully exposed before God to whom you must give account. That's good. At least it might be good. It means that you really get the weight of your heart. You really see your own sin for all of its shame, for all of its guilt, and for all of the wrath of God that it deserves. If you don't get the weight of this, you might consider that you've been wearing the mask of hypocrisy for so long that you've come to believe it, to think that you really are that good, and you might be fine before the Lord. If that's the case, you need to pray that the Word of God would pierce and expose you so that Jesus can do his good work in you. We will not love the good news of Jesus unless we know the bad news of ourselves first. Now, I feel the <laughs> heaviness in the room, and sharp as it is, this section of Hebrews is actually very good news. Not just good because it's going to hurt a little bit. Actually good. Here's why. When we call something in English a double-edged sword, you know that phrase, oh, that's a double-edged sword. What we mean by that is something has both a positive and a negative effect. So, for example, Facebook or Instagram or whatever, technology is a double-edged sword. Some very positive, good uses, but we also know it's, it can suck us in and twist things around. It's also got a negative effect. It's, uh, in English, that's what we mean by a double-edged sword. That's not quite the same meaning in the Greek use of this phrase, double-edged sword, but it's very similar. In the Greek, when something's described as a sword, is described as double-edged, literally the word is that the sword has two mouths. Literally, the phrase is a two-mouthed sword. That sounds strange to us, but that was their description of it. So each blade is described as a mouth of the sword. 
And I think it is no accident that the author of Hebrews then is comparing the word of God to a sword with two mouths. It's as if he's saying that this word is speaking about two things at the same time. So then what are those two things? Well, you have to dig maybe under the surface. It's not that the two things are the sword digs into us and then divides out the good and the bad stuff. As if God's going, well, that was good. Okay, that goes in this pile, and this is bad, so that will go into the pile that we send to Goodwill. Uh, you know, that's not what's happening here. That's not the way the Bible speaks about us. That's not gospel or good news of Jesus. That's not how he works. The author here in piercing us is just saying that the sword of the word of God is digging down to our deepest depths of the heart. But as this sword pierces us, and reveals the depths of our heart, it is also revealing some profound truths about the depths of God's heart. Let me show you what I mean. When I was in college, I spent a few summers um, on what they called um, summer project connected to a group I was in in college, and I went a few kind of exciting places, but there were a group of Christians that were there to share Jesus with people, and so we're all kind of meeting each other. We're from all these different places kind of gathered in one space, and so to kick off the summer, we had what was called soul to soul, soul to soul, Uh, meaning that they would gather us up in small groups of five or six or so, and we would share about our lives. We took one day and night, all day, to do this, and it would go very late into the night, usually over a bonfire or something like that. And you would share about everything. Each person would take a turn and share about your life, the bright spots and the dark spots, the very darkest days, the hardest wrestles in our life stories, just some of the most terrifying things that I've ever done to willingly expose my full life to someone. Because there's a huge risk in that. Huge. I know as soon as I say certain things that they might reject me, when a person hears and really gets to see about me, they might recoil away in disgrace or they might lean in close in love. And in my experience, I'm fortunate for us, in in my groups of the soul to soul, it was incredibly bonding. So bonding. These people, we just met each other days before. Virtual strangers are now like brothers, like family. Because it is one thing to love an image of a person that they project, to love the mask that they put on. It is quite another thing to really love all of what is behind the mask. To really see and know all of it and to love still. We know that God is omniscient, meaning he sees everything. 
He knows everything. He misses nothing. And so when he pierces down to our soul and spirit, it's not to figure out what's there. He knows it already. He's actually revealing it to us. He knows more about us than we even know ourselves. And while that is terrifying, it is also a profound comfort. Because Christian, he knows all of you. He loves you still. That's good news. It can never change because no new information comes into it. Uh, A.W. Tozer uh, wrote about this in a small book called The Knowledge of the Holy. I commend the book to you. It's wonderful and lovely. Uh, He has a chapter on omniscience. And he says this. To us, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us in the gospel, how unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No tattletale can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspecting weakness in our own character can come to light and turn God away from us. Since he knew us completely before we knew him, and still he called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. Jesus knows the depths of your heart and still calls you close. It's good news. The word of God really speaks of the great love of God. So we welcome this. We want to let that two-edged sword pierce us so that we'll know ourselves but more importantly so that we will know our God to close I want to pray a section of Psalm 139 I'll use this as our prayer here Would you please pray with me? O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.